0: Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we get our guests to talk us through stories which they think are important but underreported. In the mainstream media, this podcast allows us to shine a light on some interesting and informative things happening around the world. This week, I'm joined by two illustrious guests. We have Marie Leconte, who is a commentator and unheard contributor. Marie is also very prolific on Twitter. Uh, If you don't follow her, you must do. She's very, very funny. And Michael Burley, who is a historian author and commentator for The Mail on Sunday, The Times and Unheard. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Hi. Right, so we're going to go straight to you, Marie, for your very first underreported story.
1: Um, I guess the thing I'm finding interesting at the moment and not just this week is, um, so you know, when especially abroad people talk about French politics, they will just talk about Macron, which, you know, is fine. He is the president and everything. But but I do think that what's also happening is the fact that, you know, we still have a very strong far right in France and we still have like a strong far left as well with uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, meanwhile, the kind of like two formerly mainstream parties, I guess, are still polling at dire levels, and and you know, and have no idea really what they're doing. You know, neither has a really inspiring leader. Again, yeah, tanking in the polls, no new ideas, um, and you know, and and a, I think it's um, it's kind of like an interesting thing to think about, partly because you know. Even this time two years ago, we never thought that, you know, the two main parties we had in France would basically have become redundant entirely. And I think, you know, other that, that can happen to other countries if it Austria. happened in France.
2: Austria, um, it's happened.
1: Oh, yes, it did, yeah. Hmm. Um, but also I think it's the, is the fact that, you know, Macron has done a very, very good job of kind of mostly, I mean, admittedly, mostly taking from the centre-right, but also, you know, some bits of rhetoric and stuff from the centre-left, kind of like swallowing that up. But the issue is that, Eventually, voters will probably get tired of Emmanuel Macron. And what is going to happen then? You know, if he's not giving the space to those two formerly mainstream parties to actually grow again, we will end up with effectively sort of like Mélenchon going against Le Pen or Le Pen's niece or whoever. Um, And I actually wrote a piece for Unheard this week about exactly that, but mostly focusing on the right, because Laurent Vauquier, who's the leader of the Republicans on the right, um, came to speak in London recently. Um, And it was this kind of... It was this nearly embarrassing thing where you know he got on stage and he was like, "Look, I'll I'll, I'll address the elephant in the room and yep. actually give a list of of the policies that you know Macron is currently enacting, which I in our party agree with." Um, and the problem is that list was very very long. You know, mm. it was from education, from some like pro business stuff uh, to labour law reforms and railway reform and everything. Um, and I think you know, and that kind of showed that that there's currently like no space. He's not he's not giving space to anyone and I'm not I'm not sure what's going to happen going forward again when voters do end up getting tired of Macron for one reason or the other I
0: suppose though I mean the the sort of I suppose obvious analogy everyone says that Macron is this sort of Blair type kind of figure why would he give the space to any of his political opponents right now you know he he you know he did quite a miraculous thing in terms of his um his sort of gilded uh, ascent And, you know, surely good politicians do that thing where they they cherry-pick. I mean, you could argue that Theresa May, when she made her speech on the steps of Downing Street, you know, having worked for Ed Miliband, our cheeks were burning, thinking, (laughs) hang
1: on a minute, we want our manifesto ideas back, please. I do remember, actually, the Theresa May speech at her first speech as leader Conservative Party conference in 2016 and being in the hall and thinking, you know, even before everyone had, you know, given their take on Twitter and everything, like, while it was happening, I was thinking, well... She keeps going from sort of like Ed Miliband to a Daily Mail headline and then back again Swinging and back then back. And it, was, and it was actually really interesting to watch. So, no, I completely agree. But I'm not, yeah, I think I guess I'm just worried about like, what these parties do need to rebuild themselves. And as far as we are seeing so far, they're just not doing it. They're not capable. Sorry, particularly
2: since Macron's support is actually sort of mile wide and an inch deep. So, if there's some sort of either domestic or exogenous crisis, then as you quite rightly say, where do the voters go after him?
1: Because again, I think especially on the left, there was Mm. um, this interesting study a few months ago, no, last month actually, um, asking voters, so like from where zero is very left wing and 10 is very right wing, so like put Mm. Macron on a scale, and they put him at 6.7. So I think, you know, he is now seen as firmly kind of centre right. So he's already losing, if not has lost a lot of his centre-left support. And again, you know, those people kind of have nowhere to go because the Parti Socialiste is a complete mess and there's that lack of trust now and I'm not sure where they go.
2: And also there's, there's another thing lurking in your article which interests me, which is the increasing permeability of mainstream conservatism to the far right, which is happening again all over Europe. Yeah.
1: Oh, entirely. And again, you know, when you look at Vauquier, he used to be, I mean, not quite a fringe figure, but was always very much on the right of the, uh, then it was called the UMP. Hmm. And, you know, and there's stuff which which we've not actually really seen sort of mainstream conservative MPs say, but, you know, stuff like a few years ago, I think he wanted to prevent um, school canteens from having a replacement meal when pork was on the menu just arguing, you know, if you're in films, that's it. You're going to eat the pork or not eat at all. Mm-hmm. And that's mad. And that is now, you know, the leader um, of me. Main... Well, I mean, also, I mean,
0: Macron has lent in quite, you know, heavily in the immigration. I mean, he's just proposed, uh, you know, um, plans which, you know, have had all the human rights organisations um, up in arms, but then has that sort of Blairite PR touch, where, of course, when we had the Spider-Man immigrant who went and saved the baby, he was at, the, like... <laughs> like within five seconds being kind of photographed with um, macron and offered jobs and this that the next thing so he does have that but i mean wh- where do you think his support is i mean i've just come back from uh, two days in nice and Cannes. it was a huge struggle i, I can tell you <laughs> it really was that the left-wing struggle is real um but i'm trying to bring down the system from within obviously <laughs> but um Ch- chatting around to various people, including my cab drivers, interestingly, my one cab driver said to me he had hated Macron, um, but now he couldn't bring himself to vote for Le Pen. So he was probably of that left who kind of couldn't stomach, didn't like Macron, but couldn't stomach obviously voting for Le Pen. But he sort of said that he had now got a grudging respect for Macron because he was sort of, really putting himself into the job and he sort of had some respect for that and he thought he was trying to kind of push forward with some quite bold things.
1: That's interesting. I think that what... What we're missing, and in fairness, what I miss as well, because I, I, you know, I live here in in France, is that it, like, There is such a marmite effect with Macron, where, and, and I see it with my family and my friends, of either, you know, people like my dad, who in fairness, kind of like solidly, sort of like centrist, centre right. Literally, I think Macron could do no wrong. It's very funny. I think my dad is probably paid by the Macron government for the PR, <laughs> like you know, he's sort of like giving it's like them a sleeper cell. <laughs> But then, you know, on the other hand, quite a lot of... Even my sort of, like, normally very soft and quite wet sort of, like, centre-left friends hate him with the passion, but generally a kind of, like, burning passion, which, you know, might just be French people. But, uh, but, but so I'm not sure. I think he is... I think Macron might be forgetting that actually, again, lots of people voted for him, even in the first round, because the other options were absolutely dreadful. You know, it was not a Blair kind of situation. There was not a sort of like wave. Obviously, what he did was incredible, but there was still not a kind of grand majority of French people who adored him. And I think that I'm not sure how he can keep on sort of like keep up with all those different expectations from people who never even really, really liked him from the start. Well, thank you for that story,
0: uh, Marie. It will be very interesting to keep um, looking at the uh, progress of Macron, I suspect. He will suffer what befalls all politicians, that your career <coughs> ends in glorious failure. Uh, Michael, on to your underreported story next.
2: Okay, well, this <clears throat> takes us to North Asia. And before I say anything, i just preface it by making the large point that unlike NATO in Europe and Canada, etc., uh, there is no tight alliance system in that entire region, partly because of just sheer geographical distance, but more importantly maybe because of the complicating presence of Japan, which has got a sort of very mixed history in most of the other states. Um, anyway, we've seen um, President Trump uh, have his spectacular summit in Singapore, um, you know, which is important to him in terms of the forthcoming midterms. But if you look at the actual... Uh, substantive achievements, I see none, um, apart from the fact that the North Korean government is going to deliver several box loads of 60-year-old bones to the <laughs> Americans next week from the um, Korean War 60 yep. years ago. Um, North Korea hasn't actually agreed to any scheduled denuclearization. <clears throat> it probably doesn't need to do very much because it's actually achieved making nuclear weapons of two different types. Uh, it has a ballistic missile program. The only missing link is that it can't miniaturize a bomb and put it on top of a missile, but presumably they're working on that.
0: Yeah.
2: Anyway, I think the main beneficiary of um, what's just happened since America got nothing out of it is actually China because what Trump effectively agreed to do is called a freeze-for-freeze freeze deal, which the Chinese have been advocating all along, which is that Kim says, "Well, you know, we're going to denuclearize one day, but would you mind stopping these joint military exercises you conduct every year with the South Koreans?" And Trump just gave that one straight away to him, so win for China on that one. This secondly um, makes the South Korean right the military because they've got a left-wing uh, president at the moment, but but the sort of Korean establishment they think, well, hang on here a minute, maybe the Americans are not really going to back us up. And look at this, Trump's also talking about pulling out 30,000 American troops on cost grounds. This has resulted in them uh, instantly smoothing over the trouble they had last year with China, which, um, you know, there was serious sort of economic retaliation by the Chinese against sort of South Korean pop music and tourism and restaurants and so on. Um, So the, the South Korean president is going to Beijing to repair the damage with the Chinese. And, of course, the Japanese are also worried, who are the other big American ally in the region, because Trump um, is going to turn up and say, well, why the hell are we paying for the defence of Japan when it's such a rich country? Mm-hmm. So although uh, Shinzo Abe has had lots of clashes with Xi Jinping, he's going to the what's going to be a trilateral summit in Beijing in um, December with the South Koreans and the Chinese. And you can quite clearly see that um, maybe what Trump's done with North Korea is having a sort of backlash effect where both of his uh, main regional allies in that region are actually going to bury the hatchet with the Chinese, so it's win-win for China as well. And then on top of that, we should not forget that Russia has a 70-mile border with North Korea. Putin is now going to be hosting Chairman Kim, and he's going on a return visit to Pyongyang shortly after that, probably in September. The Russians are going to build an oil pipeline down to uh, Seoul, um, mm. which will pump uh, Russian—sorry, a natural gas pipeline—which of course will cut out America's prospects for selling liquid natural gas to South Korea. So a big loss for the Americans as well. And the Chinese are going to be all over it, building railway lines, etc., etc., high-speed railway lines through North Korea down to the south. So again. Uh, the Americans lose out. Meanwhile, if you look at what Trump um, was trying to um, slip in place as a regional security um, structure, it's called the Quad, which is an alliance of Australia, India, um, America and Japan. That's quite an old idea. That's absolutely got nowhere. Yeah. And then he he's um, significantly, he's tried to rebrand the region by calling it the Indo-Pacific. If you if you listen to what he says, he doesn't say Asia Pacific, he says Indo Pacific. Uh, but then again, we've just seen Mr. Modi in Wuhan in China being very friendly with President Xi. And as I wrote on Unheard this week, uh, there's massive amounts of uh, Chinese um, venture capital investment in the whole Indian technology absolutely, sector. Absolutely. So on every level, yes, he's got Trump has got this sort of little spectacular show by shaking the hands of a mass murderer and elevating him into his best new friend, but at massive cost. And I fear that's going to happen again and again with Trump.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you have raised this story and given us such a kind of an eloquent exposition of your argument because I got so frustrated about how the summit, the Singapore summit, was covered. What that was was a massive PR stunt. I mean, this is a time of our geopolitics um, is sort of being reduced... Uh, if we're not bright enough to figure out what's happened. Mm -hmm. It's been reduced to the very, very shiny optic. Our kind of coverage of that summit was as kind of flimsy as those ridiculous coins that the White House sort of produced. And while we were all kind of analysing the body language and sort of high-fiving Trump for for even having this meeting, nobody was really doing the deep dive behind what was -hmm. happening. And for quite a long time, um, you know, people have been saying, you know, just look at where the shift, the, the plates are shifting. This is all about the rise of the East now. This is all about the rise of um, China. And I thought it was fascinating um, to just start to look for the kind of hidden hand of the Chinese behind the scenes in terms of how this was done, how it was, um, you know, choreographed. And I'm afraid, I think we've all been... I mean, you obviously haven't, Michael, but I think quite a lot of the mainstream media have been pretty duped by all of this.
2: The phrase hidden hand slightly unfortunate because it conjures up images of Fu Manchu in the <laughs> Saxe Roma thrillers in the early 20th century. But, um, I mean, there is another way, another uh, corollary of this, which, of course, is the forthcoming NATO summit in July. And Trumpy is going to turn up and put the screws on several European countries for not spending enough on defence. Although, uh, you know, were the Germans to raise their defence spending to 2% of GDP, all of the countries to the east of them... Would have kittens in terror if germany spent that much money on defense there'd be seas of panzers of leopard yeah. tanks and planes so let's not let's be careful what we wish for but i think if there's another row there which i suspect he's going to engineer on defense spending but on that's top what of he the, does that's what, that's he, what does. he does he
0: pitch rules but yeah. he pitch rules by having a huge yeah. ride to make sure he's the focus of, of whatever summits happening yeah. and we all play along with it and
2: that on top of the g7 quebec summit. Then I could quite easily see a lot of Europe, uh, people in Europe um, starting to agree with my basic position, which is that there is no uh, there are no geopolitical conflicts whatsoever between Europe and china none i can 't think of one and yet the economic human
0: rights that's, uh,
2: human, that's an issue. human rights is is a declining factor in our consciousness uh, really? we've had peak human rights. I could easily explain why I think that we 've had peak human rights, you know the world run by unelected lawyers. Um, you've now distracted me. But what I was going to say was that, no, there are no strategic conflicts. We're not, we're not Pacific powers. And at the same time, because of ramifying uh, economic contacts through the One Belt, One Road initiative, the amount of trade between the EU and China is now $1 billion a day. Now, once the Chinese have pumped $5 trillion into the One Belt Road initiative... Remember that the Marshall plan in modern day equivalent was 120 billion dollars? Well, they're going to put five trillion into this. Once that starts, the economic contacts will be massive mm. and our societies, if Trump stays there for six years, will think, hang on a minute, why? Why are we linked with this sort of erratic, crazy place over the Atlantic, which you know on many levels, cultural included, I have long ceased to respect, and then we will um, turn to the Chinese.
0: Michael has just made the the point well that if Trump continues, we might look at this you know awful person and think we don't want to do business with them. But then we don't exactly love the human rights records in in China. But Michael saying that that doesn't matter. What do you think?
1: I mean, I don't. I obviously disagree that you know it doesn't matter. But it is the case that you know, and especially. Um, in Europe, there has been, you know, like many European countries, sort of like making deals time and time again with, mm-hmm. you know, like close allies, which are countries where, you know, terrible, terrible things happen, like Saudi Arabia, um, we exactly, know. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, and I think that there is an issue where, and that that might sound glib, but there's generally just so many things happening at the moment that, in terms of, you know, activism and people protesting or people even, you know, sort of like advocating against those kind of alliances um, with countries like, that there's no, there's no space. I think there's no oxygen for those campaigns to. Properly, kind of, you know, happen. So, I, I sort of agree in a, in a sort of like cynical way. I think that human right, the human right records of countries, perhaps don't matter as much as they once did um, on the world stage.
2: Can I just add this? I mean, I'm a historian, so unlike most people, I actually study the history of human rights, and you can see that it, you know, this concern with you know international human rights order, it started basically in the seventies. It's also bound up with the rise of what you might cynically call the Holocaust industry because the two things are sort of rather oh. interconnected. No, 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 no. Oh. Well, look uh, at some... I, well, uh, I connect, quite... connect, to, connect the two things in one person. Okay. Take Philippe Sands, who's a leading human rights lawyer and also has written a history book about the Holocaust. That, in a way, exemplifies what I'm talking about.
0: OK, but I just want to say for the record, and just given that I'm presenting this podcast, yeah. I feel very uncomfortable about the, the kind of sense of you know, this sort of commercialization or mm-hmm. um of, of the Holocaust sort of industry because, you know, I completely push back against I find that really, really uncomfortable.
2: Well I've been part, you know, me. very much part of it. I've written several books on exactly that. And I've certainly, you know, know know that subject backwards and forwards and worked inside the institution. Sure, Michael, that, but that you that you will have your view it. and
0: I have mine. that's yeah. the great thing about unheard. We can yep. have these Debates.
2: Okay. Well, at the point I'm making, leaving that aside, is that 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 sort of concern rose, and I guess things like the responsibility to protect doctrine in the military in the 90s was adopted. You know the armies adopted the idea of protecting civilians subject to attack. That's in a way the the apogee of it. But like it or not, the present reality that we live in is that all the major powers around the world, whether it's Erdogan, Xi, Putin, you name it, Trump notably, he's just walked out of the United Nations Human yeah. Rights Council. Do not subscribe to this philosophy, that this should sort of that the human rights abstraction should trump everything else and that every every other consideration should be subordinate to that I, I and we do not live in that world I, anymore
0: I completely agree with you but that does not negate a lot of people's um, feelings about it and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people probably, you know, we probably come from sort of different political um, and human rights traditions if you like but I think, you know, a lot of people, we do get that in it, we're always told like the, the economics trumps everything and mm-hmm. you're right but people still do feel uncomfortable and do want to express their sort of views. But Marie, you want to come in?
1: Um, no, I I agree. And I do think that actually from a UK perspective as well, Brexit is sort of going to make that worse. Because mm. I, I remember I think the main example I can think of is when I think it was Liam Fox who went to the Philippines yeah. to meet uh, Duterte. <laughs> and, you know, and there was, you know, the full photo up and isn't it grand to be meeting him and soon we'll be trading with the Philippines. You yeah. know, Duterte is, you know, a man who, among many other things, has called for the extrajudicial killings yeah. of Drug uh, dealers and users. You know that's a man who I think currently is offering to give free, like free firearms to mm. citizens. You know who want to just help with, you know, help with um, with with you know getting the country like rid of um of of drug dealers again and takers. And that's completely bonkers. The fact that yeah, like a, a senior cabinet minister in the UK decided to put Brexit above, you mm. know, above the kind of principles. I think we as countries like, that should have
2: yeah and also i mean our main strategic uh, partner certainly in the middle east is the, the gulf state saudi arabia the uae and bahrain and uh, you know we're going to be flogging them a lot of weapons really well we and, have been uh, doing for a long time uh, Well, we, we're going to step it up uh, much more and uh, they have disgraceful human rights records i mean the emirati although again this is something which is totally underreported the emirati forces in southern yemen at the moment are running sort of torture centres and doing the most appalling things to um, captive not just Houthi but sundry other so-called terrorists they pick up. Absolutely, And it's being done with our absolute connivance. Well,
0: it also takes us full circle back to North Korea. I mean, we all fated Kim (laughs) Jong-un for just turning up to a meeting Mm -hmm. and we forget about the appalling human rights records, the fact that, you know, gulags are still, you Mm -hmm. know, well in operation... And as you said, the other thing which I think is very interesting about all this um, chicanery between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, it has done the most amazing thing for Kim Jong-un. It has elevated him. It has elevated him to the status of, you know, the the leader of the free world to sort of meet one-on-one yeah. um, with it. Well, look, really, really interesting uh, topic. I mean, this is a story which is going to run and run, and and I I disagree with you on the human rights stuff, but I agree with you. I think all eyes are on China and Russia now in terms of the, the, the future of um, geopolitics. Right, we are now going to move on to heroes and villains of the week. Marie, we're going to start with your hero of the week.
1: Um, my hero of the week is actually um, Labour MP Lisa Nandy, who, um, I mean, A, you know, as a journalist, I will always appreciate a politician who actually gets news out of PMQs because that normally never, ever happens. Um, but no, more seriously, you know, she, she had a question at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday and um, and got leaks. I think it was a Freedom of Information request, uh, but got email proof that ministers were warned about the Northern Royal chaos two years ago like they knew this was going to happen again like a full two years ago and had those emails obviously like Theresa May looked incredibly uncomfortable um and that was in. You know, and I, I think that was an absolutely sort of like brilliant thing to do and also I think as a kind of side note as well showing that you know just because um some MPs have been left out in the calls by the Corbyn sort of you know um administration does not mean they can't do anything does not mean they can't be a sort of like effective backbencher so uh
0: yeah well i would i think lisa nandy is um really really impressive and i think she is um an M- i mean she was often touted as a potential sort of leader although i think anybody who's touted as a potential leader in the Labour party is like an absolute sort <laughs> <laughs> of, of death,
1: death. Yeah.
0: um i think she is a very uh, um mike have you got any comments on this on this story about lisa nandy and
2: well she's she's performed a very um useful public service by exposing the um chronic mismanagement of the railways and although I suppose um, I'm sort of liberal conservative just about still um, although I've you know, voted Labour and Liberal Democrat in very recent elections uh, I think there's a good case for uh, nationalizing the railways I mean all the people who say oh yes you know they were dreadful when they were nationalized women which I can certainly remember um, that seems a bit by the by I mean lots of countries in Europe have got national railway lines like SNCF yeah. and Deutsche Bahn which actually owns quite a bit of our railways, I seem to remember. Yeah. train <laughs> Trenitalia that is Italia is Trenitalia amount. is a pleasure right. to use in my <laughs> experience, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I don't really see what the problem is unless you're just a dogmatic sort of free marketeer.
0: Yeah. And also I think the fact um that we have actually ended up bailing out quite a few um franchises. Yeah. And actually, some of them worked quite well. um, Is like a bit of a a, and if you keep
2: splitting everything down into sort of endlessly fracturing, privatized parts, and then you sort of you must be an idiot if you wonder why it's all incoherent and it doesn't cohere together. I mean, this is insane.
0: Um, Michael, your villain of the week.
2: Oh, my villain. Yes. Well, I have to say, uh, Matteo Salvini of um, Italy's Lega party, because. um, Drawing up um, censuses um, aimed at particular groups of people, in his case, at Roma gypsies, um, is generally a bad idea, a bad thing to do.
0: Doesn't normally end well, does it? Doesn't end well,
2: that sort of thing. No. Lists are always very bad news. Um, But not just for that, because the person who's um, shouting the most about migrants and causing the most waves which could have very bad political effects in Germany in the next two weeks, maybe. He's also the person who is Italian interior minister who has done nothing, and I repeat, nothing, to stop the very uh, substantial involvement of the Italian mafia in what is a €6 billion migrant trafficking business. Uh. They've discovered, of course, it's great business because, you know siphoning off government money for a migrant reception centre, the penalties for doing that are zero compared with being caught with, you know, a tonne of cocaine. You do go to prison. Um, So he is doing nothing about the complicity of his own compatriots in this crisis. And until the day he does, I'm not really going to take him very seriously whatever he says about Roma, let alone migrants.
0: That's such an interesting point. I mean, one of the great motivators... Um, of why people get on these boats particularly from Africa is there's a tr- there's a there's a trade in it you know they are promised yeah. um they are they're promised this um great life and the traffickers make a huge amount of money I mean I've, mm. I've done some um work looking at people coming from from Nigeria and the other untold story about often the the journey that people make when they get on the boat they often put their family in debt back home mm. to the the the, yeah, the, the the slave mass as well so the, the you're right i mean this this kind of slave trafficking business is really not talked about in the discussion about why people
1: come over and how they come over so um
0: marie your thoughts on that uh,
1: i mean i i you know would definitely agree that um he is a villain of the week. And and I'm and it is one of those, isn't it? I'm just so sort of like worried sick about the situation in Italy. But you like know, there's just so much going on that, you know, I feel like I didn't even fully have the bandwidth to f- like fully follow everything that's going on there. But every sort of like new headline is absolutely terrifying. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I feel like the the EU doesn't seem to be as worried as it should be. Because I was, um so I was at this conference in Brussels in February. And it was very much kind of, you know, like EU technocrats there and everything. Um, and it was called, actually, funnily enough, the EU back on track. And it was effectively two days of kind of, yeah, Eurocrats just patting each other mm. on the back. You know, and I'm saying that as a massive Europhile, um, but effectively patting each other on the back and saying, OK, well, fine, we've had Brexit, all good now, you know, we can go forward and do our thing and it's going to be brilliant. And there was kind of no sense of actually, you know, or like quite a few of the states are not doing so well. So I'm I'm not sure how the EU is actually going to cope with that.
2: I mean, what this what this seems to be coming down to is whether we're going to end up with each country playing beggar thy neighbour and just shunting people out across the border, which actually is what Angela Merkel herself is trying to cook up uh, this weekend with a mini pre-summit conference.
0: Well, she's had her own problems. Yeah, she this. certainly has had her um, own
2: problems. Now, that that is one thing. And, of course, you know, the, the Visegrad group states, the four states in Central Europe, are just saying absolutely no to migrant quotas, so that closes off that option but at the same time at the at the federal european level it's taken them until this major crisis three years or so to cook up their current response which is to open up um sort of holding camps effectively in tunisia albania Egypt, etc., to process my. Well, no, Libya, because they, they can't do it in Libya because there's no EU embassy there and it's too unstable. But didn't
0: Italy do some sort of deal with. They've done a bilateral bill, deal, but yeah. it,
2: the, it's too dangerous to do that uh, in Libya. So, anyway, they're going to do that. But really, what this is going to take, and and they have to be fair, done it with Burkina Faso, which it takes minimal amounts of money in a country like Burkina Faso to give them a few jeeps and radios for the frontier guards and pay them decently and stop them being bribed by smugglers who earn far more and then you can seal off migration from Burkina Faso you just need to generalize that policy
0: well i mean it's the issue of our age i mean it's 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 such a difficult issue and i think the the trauma is there is people who want who are fleeing from obvious war torn places syria etc but there's a lot of people who want to leave where they live it's kind of human nature you know time immemorial we have you know got up and walked off to different countries to find sanctity security prosperity whatever but it's going to be fascinating to see how this pans out but uh, central europe is absolutely riven uh, with the issue of um, immigration now um marie we are going to come to you for your villain of the week
1: um, so, I mean, again, there were many, many people to choose from, but... Um, there I always guess, are. There are, God, yeah, and struggle with a hero, but yeah, villains, there's always not. <laughs> a lot. Um, but no, mine actually this time is uh, is Steve Hilton, um, mm. because, you know, Ann Coulter went on his show on Fox earlier this week and effectively accused the kids, the migrant kids being separated um, from their parents um, just you know, accused them of being crisis actors, and it was all you know, kind of like fake. And uh, and he did not interrupt her. He was kind of you know nodding along, and you know didn't didn't try to sort of like rebut that at all. And I guess you know I picked him because but he kind of
0: sniggered along with it, didn't he? He did.
1: He did. And I, yeah, I guess I picked him because you know everyone, you know everyone involved in actually the, those stories. Um, you know, is the villain of, should be the villain of the week, but but is mean, the fact that you know Steve Hilton, not that long ago, in what feels like a different world, but you know, not that long ago, was working in Downing Street for David Cameron. You know, that is a man who is at the heart of the British establishment, and we always knew he was, you know, a bit bunkers. But but you know, like I feel like he's he's just clearly has you know no morals, no sense of ethics, nothing, and it's just been absolutely appalling watching his kind of like full... I know. mean. I
0: I found the, the contrast to his sort of complicit sniggering with Anne Coulter, which was just, like, just horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible. And just she sort of looked right down the, the lens of the camera, compared it to uh, Rachel Maddow, who was an anchor who actually couldn't finish reading the statement because she was very, very moved about it. Now, some people have argued and said, look, it's not the job of an anchor to get super emotional about things. And she's actually put out a statement saying, look, I'm really sorry I got emotional. It was just it kind of overwhelmed me. The fact that I was sort of reading something that was happening in, in our country about caging babies, you know, but did a huge um apology. But Steve Hilton's is such an interesting character because he was a big f- figure, you know, as part of the, the 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 Brexit campaign, part of the successful Brexit campaign, and his big argument was that he's against elites. He's a man of the people, and he's against elites. This is a guy who's been at the heart of Downing Street. His wife, um, you know, was a hugely influential figure in Downing Street and was working for Uber and Google and a lot of these kind of big companies. So I just find that sort of hypocrisy about um, I'm against elites. Yet yeah, I'm literally networked into the most powerful people yeah. on the planet.
2: I mean, this is. Uh, I wrote a column in the Times about this a couple of months ago, which is that if you look at a lot of these populist movements, um, they're led by people like, um, you know, the uncharming Beatrix von Stork in Germany. She's um, actually the Duchess of Oldenburg and she's the granddaughter of Hitler's former finance minister. And, uh, you know, I, I think you could hardly walk into an aristocratic home in the land without people raving on in a pro Brexit manner because, of course, they'll tell you, and I've heard it from one um, exiled Polish aristocrat of my acquaintance, that uh, all these movements have brought the aristocracy back into touch with the common people.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Oh,
2: yes. And uh, anyway, to come back to Steve Hilton, who I vaguely know, um, he seems to me to exhibit all the problems, and people like Dominic Cummings and Nick Timothy and the rest of these sort of here-today, gone-tomorrow people exhibit it too, that they've fizz about in think tanks being um, encouraged to think the unthinkable in a totally irresponsible way but as uh, Marie quite rightly said they're just morally hollow they're just vacuum sort of hollow men in the T.S. Eliot sense and it can be the hollowness can be filled with anything so it's no great surprise to me that you I there they are they're sort of off the wall and they're they're colluding in disgusting, outrageous policies like this.
0: Having worked in in politics in government and in opposition in Downing Mm -hmm. Street, what is amazing is that, and they do still largely tend to be men, these kind Mm. of thinkers... From, they're not um, outside. Well, they they label themselves Kant thinkers. Is a thinker. <laughs> they, they, they label themselves, but when they come in, they're given. They ha- they wield so much power and influence. Mm. They are genuine power behind. But that's because the, the politicians throne.
2: are even emptier than they well, are. Well, the
0: politicians give them that power, mm. and it's a very it's a sort of unhidden um, discussion. You know, I mean, I've talked about it a bit. In I did a, a kind of show about my time in, in politics, but mm. this power behind the throne, it can be. So, I mean. You know, we say we live in a democracy, but often these unelected people have Mm. way more power than people in the cabinet. I know there's
2: a very good book, which I strongly recommend to you, by an American journalist called Daniel Dresner, called The Ideas Industry, which is exactly about things like think tanks, websites, and, you know, where all the money's coming from as well to pursue agendas. So when, when, I don't know, the BBC says, oh, here's so-and-so from policy exchange or from some other think tank, They don't actually say, well, this is paid for by this hedge fund billionaire, and it might actually just be representing the views that he would like to see put into the public sphere. Well,
0: Taxpayers' Alliance.
2: The Taxpayers' (laughs) Alliance is a very good example. I can think of many others. And all of these things should should come along with the equivalent of a health warning on a packet of cigarettes or a wine bottle. You know, this is where this comes from. This is the agenda. Well, the Legatum Institute was a very good example of this. It should have that on it. And they shouldn't just be introduced on some radio or TV program, or Question as if Time, just, as if they've just popped up like they're some academic from a politics department. They're not. They're just hired pens.
1: Yeah, and that transpires, Marie. And next, so they just come to come back, I guess, to those people as well. I think that you know those kind of like ideas men. I don't think it's a coincidence that again most of the people who kind of have those jobs are having you know the, the big kind of abstract ideas. Is that you know those are overwhelmingly like you know they tend to be sort of like middle-class or posh of like straight white men who've had a very sort of like cushy upbringing and education and life but you know nothing has ever really had consequences so mm. politics is very much a kind of game and it's just you know either you know mm. either on the side of you know is that like our team needs to win like you know like our boys and whatever and it's all good fun or on the other side of you yeah. know but why not do this or that? Or, you know, who knows? Like you know, and kind yeah. of just have these like really lofty ideas because they've not really lived. You know, these are people mm. who've never really been confronted with the consequences of their actions. Yeah, exactly. Or, mm. or when I and also, in... they
2: weave in in and out between these <clears throat> blasted think tanks, and then becoming spads for different <laughs> ministers. And there they are. You know, you don't know who the hell they are, what, well, as, what they're as one proposing. The, as
0: one of the few female <clears throat> BME uh, spads that ever kind of made it to a senior <laughs> level, and I do remember sitting in a room with a lot of these boys, and I always remember thinking, they all looked the same. Mm, they all sounded mm. the same. Yeah, they yeah, all yeah. went to the same schools. They all yep. sort of went out with the same people. They were all, And they yep. were all called Bob, Tom and Simon. And so that's how I used to kind of, <laughs> kind of class them. They were sort of the Bob, Tom and Simon class. And they sort of meant well, but they just had this rarefied sort of existence where, again, I think, you know, a lot of it, was about ideas and the politics being a parlour game and not really having massive consequences well look we have run out of um, time we could be chatting all day it's been such um, an interesting discussion thank you so much to Michael and Marie for being my excellent um, and thought provoking guests uh, this week Um, so you've been listening to the Unheard weekly podcast with Aisha Hazarika Um, oh yeah I should say actually I'm very delighted that we were um, part of the Observer's top 10 political podcasts last week so um, you are listening to an approved show Um, do join us next week week and thanks for your company.